Can't thank you enough tonight for being here once again and continuing with us on this little study of how the church developed through the years. And as I mentioned last night, when we speak of the term church, I'm going to be use this, using this term a little bit on the accommodative side and be talking more about Christendom in general. Of course, the church, when we look at the church of the New Testament, is very specific, has very specific doctrines. And of course, many of the things that we will talk about tonight certainly did not come from the mind of God as far as doctrine is concerned. But I want us to go back, first of all, this evening and just review for a moment a couple of things that we noted last night. Now, last night we covered basically from the time of the establishment of the church at about 30, 33 A.D. on up to the time of Constantine in about 313 A.D. And, of course, what we discovered is that the church was established, of course, on the day of Pentecost. There the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles, and they were, uh, again, uh, given great power. And the church then from that, on, that point on began to spread into the known world. And, of course, the book of Acts is really the record of the church, and it spread as it spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then, of course, through the apostle Paul to the uttermost parts of the world. We also noted that the church had always been, from the very beginning, under great persecution. First, by the Jewish community in which the church rose, and then, of course, later by the Gentiles as the church began to spread and encounter the various false theologies such as emperor worship. And then we noted that in about 306 A.D., Emperor Constantine came to power. Now, there had been many very evil emperors up to this time that had sought to stamp out and destroy Christianity and imprison and kill many Christians. But now Constantine saw that the faith of the Christian was strong. And so seeking to incorporate that into his own political agenda, he issued what is called the Edict of Milan, which was an edict stating that Christianity could be raised to the status of other religions in the empire. And of course, what that meant was that Christianity then was a legal religion. Now, later on, of course, Constantine espoused more readily Christianity. But at this point, it just gave Christianity a platform on which it could spread even further throughout the next centuries. Now, while that was a good thing on some level, when we find the church, and I think the same is true today, when we find the church in easy environments, we find that many false doctrines often come in. We find people getting lazy. We find the faith of the Christian beginning to diminish. And so that's exactly what began to happen as the church began to go on into the fourth, fifth centuries and beyond. We began to see a lot of changes in doctrine and changes in leadership and changes in things that the Apostle Paul had only warned about. Well, that brings us then to our study tonight, and that is, as we look at Christianity in the 5th centuries and on, what we begin to see is that Christianity takes on the thought processes of the world. You know, it's often said that what is in the world gets into the church, and that, of course, is true even today. Well, that's not, that was no different in that period of time. And so what happened after the apostles died? Again, they had warned that there was going to be a great apostasy, a great falling away, we find then that various doctrines began to be infiltrated into the church of Jesus Christ and eventually made it into an organization that was not even in resemblance to what Jesus had instituted. 
Now, during the early ages, from about 100 AD on through up until even the time of the Reformation, you had various thinkers that began to arise. And these men were called uh, early church fathers. And we use that term accommodatingly. That's what historians call them. Because these were individuals historically that had espoused Christianity but made great inroads into the influence of Christians in the Roman Empire at this particular time. Now, what, again, we need to keep in mind is that men often depart from God's way. And the apostles had warned that after their death, men would arise from among their own ranks and lead others astray. And so when we look at these very formative thinkers, while some of them were brilliant in their theologies, while many of them had very good things to say, it is from these thinkers, not the apostles, but the thinkers that came after the apostles, that you begin to have various theologies, various mixtures between paganism and cultism with Christianity, which were then incorporated into Christendom of that time. Now, there were several. In fact, you have what is called the post-Nicene Fathers, you have the, uh, the anti-Nicene Fathers, and they're a whole study within themselves. There are many, many individuals that over the centuries rose up and were guiding and leading Christendom throughout the known world. And of course, many of these were eminent teachers in congregations. Many of these were leaders such as bishops or elders in various congregations. And what happened was some of them had come into Christianity out of paganism itself. For example, St. Augustine, which you may have heard quite a bit about, had been converted from Manichaeism by a man by the name of, uh, let's see, what was his name? Well, anyway, it was another church father, and uh, uh, Ambrose was his name. And uh, Augustine had come out of this heresy that was dualistic. And this heresy was that flesh was evil and spirit was good. Well, Augustine was a prolific writer. And what I'm telling, what I'm speaking about this, and the reason this is important, is because later on, Augustine begins to write, and he fills up volume after volume of material that influenced the church, and eventually gave John Calvin the basis for his inherited sin doctrine. In fact, it has been said, and we don't have time to go into this tonight, but it's been said that Augustine, and he lived in the 5th century, that Augustine gave us the Reformation. And that's exactly right, because the theologies of John Calvin that came hundreds of years later really are based upon the doctrines of uh, Augustine, who was trying to come out of this paganistic background and was never quite really able to leave it where it was. And so these early church fathers, as they are called, these early church thinkers, uh, began to be elevated. Their words were accepted. They wrote prolifically, and it began to influence the church in some good ways, but mostly, I would say, probably in bad ways. And so you have many of these thinkers, and Augustine is just simply one. Well, keep in mind again, Paul had warned about this era. Paul had said, listen, after my departure, there's going to be grievous wolves that enter into the flock. He had warned Timothy of that. And, of course, the other apostles had warned the church as well. One of the most poignant phrases or passages, I think, is found in Acts the 20th chapter. Now, you remember in Acts 20, Paul meets with the elders at the church at Ephesus. And here's what he says. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. 
He starts, first of all, by telling us the importance and the value of the Lord's body. And then he goes on to say, For I know this, that after my departure shall savage wolves or grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And that's exactly what happened. And so when we look at church history, we need to keep in mind we have to filter it through God's Word because many changes came about in the second, third, on through even today, which, of course, the Bible knows nothing of. Jude, in Jude 1, in verse 3, says that they were to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all time or once completed and delivered to the saints. And then Jude warns of those who would creep in very deviously and lead, of course, Christians astray. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, said that the Spirit spoke expressly that in the latter times, some would depart from the faith. And notice some of the things that these false teachers would do. They would be hypocrites, first of all. And then secondarily, they would forbid to marry. They would command certain ascetic practices, such as the abstinence from food and, of course, other things. In other words, they would make up their own rules rather than going back to the apostolic teaching. Now, as the church, and again, I'm using that in a broad sense, as the church began to spread away from the first century, as John now has been buried, and of course, the church now has, uh, again, uh, you know, ceased having spiritual gifts, as the word of God really has been completed, and the folks should have been looking back to that, the church began to apostatize. It began to change, and there were two major areas in which the church began to change. And there were two major streams of influences that began to help the church change in the wrong direction. First of all, there were heretics. Now, a heretic is just simply someone who teaches a doctrine that you don't believe, or in this case, a doctrine that God didn't give. And of course, heretics began to arise up, as we'll notice, and that's exactly what Paul had warned of. Those that had, uh, would, would, we, would rise up, he said, from among them, they were heretics. And then also there were other writings, competing writings, apocryphal writings, they are called, that began to be written by various spurious groups, by various groups that were cultic, and they began to convince Christians that these writings should be heeded too. Now, when I do the little study on how we got the Bible, I deal with some of this a little bit more in depth, but let me just very quickly and very cursory uh, deal with this issue. First of all, the heretics. Again, Paul had warned there would be some among them that would rise up from within the church. Now, of course, we want to trust each other in the church, don't we? But we only trust each other in as much as what is being taught, even by your most popular preacher, teacher, favorite, uh, favorite uh, leader, is in accord with the New Testament scriptures. Well, one of the most famous heretics in the early days of the church in the second century was a man by the name of Marcion. Now, Marcion was a man who really was dualistic. He was really coming from a Gnostic background. Flesh was evil, spirit was good, and therefore he concluded that Jesus could not have come in the flesh. Jesus could not have come and had a fleshly body because flesh was evil. And so then he kind of concocted his own view of what Jesus was, and he had his own view of what God was. In fact, he could not reconcile the God, as he put it, of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Now, we have no problem with that because we know that the old and new are connected by Jesus. 
But he would read the Old Testament and see that, you know, God of the Old Testament was a warring God in his view. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. And so he could never come to harmonize those two concepts in the Old and New Testament. And so what he did was rather than just leave the faith, he decided basically to start his own. He began then to teach uh, various things such as the, in, the non-incarnation of Jesus. That's called docetism. He also began to concoct his own canon of scripture. He was very fond of the Apostle Paul's writings to some degree and rejected most of the others. And of course, eventually he created such a stir in the second century churches that he was excommunicated in about 144 AD. Well, Marcion was not alone. There were many false teachers that rose up either trying to help themselves financially or get status in, in the, the world around them, but they rejected many of the things that the apostles taught. There were other groups that began to rise up. For example, Montanus. Montanus was a man who had uh, this view that he himself could receive continual revelation. And of course, what he had revealed to him was against God's word. And so he rejected the authority of the word of God. He rejected the authority of the church. He basically put the authority on himself. And then, of course, as I've already mentioned, Gnosticism, which in John's day apparently was just getting started, became full-blown in the second and third centuries. Flesh is evil and spirit is good. And so there's this dualism. Rather than seeing the body as a tool for righteousness that is neither inherently good or evil, the Gnostics just simply said that flesh was evil. Now, while this is not our topic tonight, notice the similarity between that idea and John Calvin's inherited sin. Because you see, John Calvin, who got really his, his uh, theology from the Gnostic teaching, the Manichaeistic teaching of Augustine, believed that we're born in sin. That flesh basically has some inherency that is evil. Well, what about these writings? There was a set of writings or a group of writings called the Pseudepigrapha. Now, the Pseudepigrapha was a group of writings that began to spring up and what that is, is just a fancy name for writing something and then putting someone else's name to it. In other words, it was a common practice by some in these cults and in these, uh, you know, these spurious groups to write an epistle, to write a gospel purportedly to have been written or, uh, you know, concocted by someone that it was in the Bible, such as, you know, Matthew or Thomas or whatever, and then give that writing that name so it would give the writing credence. And of course, sometimes when you read uh, things in, this, in the newspaper today, you'll hear things about the lost books of the Bible. Well, what it's talking about are these books here that were spurious, that were written by uh, these heretical groups in the second, third, right on up and through the fifth, sixth centuries. And so these pseudepigraphal writings would be writings, again, that were written by someone who was not inspired, that had maybe even very little belief in the true Christian God or Christ, but they would assign a biblical name to them in order to get some credence. And so, for example, the Assumption of Moses, and of course, the Gospel of James, the Epistle of Barnabas. We don't have those in our, in our Bibles, and rightly so. But the one I want to focus on just for a half a second is the Gospel of Thomas. Now, the Gospel of Thomas is an interesting book because some of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas mimic almost exactly word for word the New Testament Gospels. 
In fact, when you read them, you'll think at times, I'm reading the New Testament. For example, uh, here's one of his sayings. It is impossible for a person to mount two horses and to stretch two bows. It is impossible for a servant to serve two masters, else he will honor the one and insult the other. Well, that's very much like what Jesus said, wasn't it? In fact, it very well may be that men who wrote books like this, whomever it was, and we don't know, it's uh, an anonymous writing, maybe was reading parts of the New Testament, maybe the Gospel of Mark, or maybe some oral tradition that they then were incorporating into these religious books of the time, and so then they could draw disciples away after them. Well, the big departure, though, and this is where I want to focus on tonight, and, you know, I don't know as we go through uh, our study how far I'm going to get. I had intended tonight to get on through the Reformation period and maybe even into what we call the Restoration Movement I don't know if we'll get there or not, but we'll do the best we can. And we'll discuss as best we can the things that I think are the most interesting and maybe the most pertinent to our own development today. You know, as I mentioned yesterday, we didn't just fall out of heaven into the pews tonight without a historical background. We all bring with our, uh, with our religion certain biases, certain uh, theological bents, certain things that culture has uh, you know, inculcated into us, and even some of perhaps the ways we interpret Scripture, uh, while we take it for granted, have been influenced through the centuries by various movements in the religious world. And we need to be aware of that so that we don't fall for false doctrine or false methods of interpretation. But one of the big questions in the first uh, few centuries was who is the head of the church? Now, you know, that may seem like a ludicrous question because Paul answered that definitively in Ephesians and in Colossians when he said that Christ is the head of the church and that the body of Christ, the church, is submissive to Jesus. But yet this issue becomes, on a practical level, a big question in the, of course, next centuries after the apostles. Now, God had laid out the leadership of the church in Ephesians 4. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Those were the ones, those were, shall we say, the offices that God had ordained. But over time, these offices and the biblical definition of them began to be tweaked. It began to be changed. And what we see then was a change in structure in the church. Now, when we look at the New Testament, what we see is we see individual congregations that are what we call autonomous. Now, autonomous simply means self-governed, self-law, autonomous, self-law. And they look to the Bible, but they don't influence directly other congregations. So, for example, the congregation here looks to the Bible, looks to Jesus as the head of the church, and maybe a congregation in Missouri does the same. We have fellowship, one with another, because we believe the same doctrines, we're walking in the same light, but one congregation does not usurp over the other. Each congregation has its own leaders. Each congregation has its own elders and deacons. That's the biblical pattern, all looking toward the New Testament as the final authority. But now over time, what began to happen was congregations here on the left that had various elders, various leaders, began to look at their congregations and began to work back and forth and began to elevate one or two leaders above the others. So let's say Plans Road has five elders 
they would pick out two of those elders to be a little bit more important than the others, and they'll call them bishops. Well, then maybe a church down the road would do the same. And then those bishops would start getting together, and then eventually they would pick out someone over them. You see the pyramid that's starting to develop? And that's exactly what happened through the first three or four centuries of the new, of the, uh, of, of after the New Testament, eventually leading to that very pinnacle, the Pope. You see, Catholicism is really a hierarchy. And of course, it started out simply with one elder in various congregations being elevated. And then those who have been elevated getting together and elevating someone else. And then eventually, the pinnacle or the Pope. Now, it's very interesting that this occurred this way. Because when you look at the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, of course, had the emperor at the top. And below that, there were various offices and governors and authority figures. And the church, I use that term again loosely, the church in the first four centuries after the apostles began to take on this pyramid structure with eventually the papacy being at the top. Now, you know, in the first centuries after the apostles, there were several areas of the world that held strong Christian theologies and strong Christian influence. For example, of course, Jerusalem. Of course, Antioch, from which the church would send out Paul, Constantinople, Alexandria, and Rome. Well, even those churches, even those areas begin to vie for authority. And so eventually the question comes down, is Rome the main place where the head of the church is? Or maybe it's somewhere else. And you see, again, when you put man in charge, you have exactly what Jesus warned against and told his apostles was not to occur, and that is you no longer have the submission one to another. You no longer have the servant attitude. You have the hierarchical attitude. Well, about 606, and it's really hard, by the way, to determine as all my reading on who really was the first pope. It depends on who you look at and who you read after because this system was a developing system. It didn't just happen overnight. But probably by 606, a man by the name of Boniface III takes on the role of universal bishop. Now, he's in Rome, and of course, that's the head of the church, so to speak. And so probably by about 606, you have Catholicism as we know it today fully developed. Now, it's going to continue to change. It's going to morph along with its growth and along with culture. But... During those first five centuries, you do not have the Catholicism of the day. What you have is a gradual departure from the truth. Now, again, what about the faithful church? Well, that's another study, but I believe that the faithful church, I believe there were always Christians. You know, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, Daniel had prophesied that when the God of heaven set up his kingdom, it would never be destroyed. And I believe physically it was never destroyed. Now, some believe that maybe it went underground or it died out in, print, in, in, uh, in practice, but in principle, in the seed of the gospel, it remained strong. I don't know. But the point is, is the church began to change into something that God had never intended. And so the question then became, who is the head of the church? Well, of course, we know it's Christ. And we know most look back to Christ. But through the years, whether it is King Henry VIII or the papal system, or some, uh, you know, some patriarch over in, in, uh, in, in Moscow, different ones have taken upon themselves really the power that should have been only Christ's. And so then, Paul warned about this. 
Now, we don't know, for example, or exactly, to whom Paul refers in 2 Thessalonians. Many think it is the pope, the pope or the papal system, and that very well could be because it does fit. But there have been various individuals throughout history, both in the Catholicism movements and in other movements, that have usurped the authority of Christ. But here's what Paul says. He says there's going to come a falling away. And he says the man of sin is going to be revealed. He's the son of perdition or destruction. And he says he's going to exalt himself above all that is called God. He's going to uh, sit in the temple of God and demonstrate himself as God. Now, was that the papal system Paul had in mind? Maybe. Or maybe it was just the things leading up to the system. But the point is, is when you have any man taking this authority upon himself, he is usurping the authority of Jesus Christ. So whomever Paul had in mind, his words, Paul's words, are applicable to many different situations. Well, let's notice now, very quickly, some of these departures from the truth. You know, there were many departures. People began to espouse man-made creeds. They began to espouse man-made traditions as the church began to spread. In fact, one of the things that Catholicism in the first few centuries, uh, especially after Constantine, uh, was a master at was allowing Christianity, so to speak, to spread, but basically assimilate and gather in all of the pagan cults and practices into Christianity. Now, I'm not here tonight to tell you about the, the, uh, the value or the lack thereof of, of celebrating holidays, but that's one of the things that the uh, Roman church did. As they would, again, try to influence pagans to come into the church, they would accept various days of worship and various practices that were already part of the, uh, the, the pagan world, and they would just give them Christian meanings. They would Christianize them by assigning some Christian uh, event or something to those dates. And of course, that was very appealing for those who now are hearing about Christianity, wanting to hang on to their old life, but seeing now that the church could offer whatever they wanted as well. But I want to focus tonight just very quickly on some specific doctrines. You know, some of these doctrines that began to be added in the uh, later days of the, of the church development are things that we still argue over today. In fact, there are things that, uh, you know, separate, for example, the Church of Christ from the denominations. One of those is infant baptism. You know, infant baptism was not part of the first century. What we want to do if we're going to establish a congregation is not go back to the second or third or fourth century. We want to go back to the first century. We want to go back to the source. Well, infant baptism is from the second century at best. And it was, of course, coming out of this idea that babies are born in sin. They need to have some sort of a washing of that sin. Well, you don't find that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the only subject of baptism is one who can believe the gospel and can be of their own volition repentant of their sins and then be baptized at their own request. And so what we have is a doctrine here that while being practiced today is not part of the New Testament apostles' teaching. It is a departure, an apostasy from the truth. The special priesthood. You know, when you read, for example, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says that we all are in this royal priesthood. We can pray to God as priests through our high priest, Jesus Christ. But as this hierarchy began to develop in the Catholic Church, 
You have individuals then who are the priests, you have the clergy, but you have everyone else who is the laity. And this, of course, gave rise to the confessional booth, gave rise to a priest needing to absolve you of your sin, and such titles as father and other religious titles were adopted. You see, again, that is something that was never known to the New Testament. So what's the point? The point is, is that men often depart from God's way. The simple pattern of the New Testament was abandoned very quickly after the apostles died. Sacramental transubstantiation. Now that's just a fancy word for what some groups, Catholicism and others, believe about the Lord's Supper. Now we believe that Jesus gave us a memorial he said, this do in remembrance of me. In other words, it's something that we remember Christ by. But now the sacramental transubstantiation doctrine teaches that the Lord's Supper literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's really a platonic thought that goes back to Plato and Aristotle. It's the idea that, you know, there are forms, and that's another subject. But nonetheless, the point is, is that they believe that the, the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus. Now, we could spend a lot of time just on that doctrine alone, but that was, an, that was a change from what Jesus and the apostles taught. In fact, there's something very interesting, and I'll throw this out. And uh, obviously, we're not going to get through all of our notes tonight, but maybe we'll do it uh, Sunday night, Lord willing, pick up the rest. But, uh, you know, it, there's some question as to whether this is truly the, the origin of the phrase hocus pocus. You know, sometimes when you see uh, magicians or kids are playing and they're playing sleight of hand, they'll say hocus pocus and they'll pull the rabbit out of the hat. Well, some people believe that this phrase came from what the priest said in Latin over the communion, over the Lord's Supper, over the Eucharist, the bread and the wine. Because remember, this mass, as it is called, was being said in Latin at that time. That was the language. But it was the language of religion. It was not the language of the common people. And so the people would listen to the priest. They didn't really understand what the priest was even saying. In fact, history says that some of the priests themselves didn't even know what they were saying. They were just saying, quoting what they had memorized. But the word in Latin, or the phrase, hocus imman corpus mim, uh, kind of sounds when you spit it all out, supposedly, at, like hocus pocus. You see, the bread and the wine become the body of Christ. And so many will attribute this term, voila, hocus pocus, rabbit pulled out of the hat, you know, to this very religious background. A lot of our phrases, by the way, do come from religious type of uh, origins and history. Well, there are other examples of false doctrines that began to creep in. In about 300, the making of the sign of the cross. That was never known to the apostles. Uh, the use of images in worship. About 375 AD, before that, obviously it would have been an anathema to have images in worship. And on and on and on we go as we see the church or Christendom spreading and going on into the future centuries, we find then more and more false doctrines beginning to be added. Now, what's the point? The point is, is that we study these things and we know a little bit about the background, hopefully, so that we can avoid going beyond the doctrine of Christ. You see, the goal of, of religion, really, or Christ, Christianity, should be to go back to the Bible, not to depart from the Bible. 
And yet, just like Paul had warned, many depart even today from the faith. Well, let's notice just a couple of more points tonight. I know I'm running out of time, but you know, after Constantine, after 606, when uh, you know the Pope, the Popery, or the the uh, the papacy rather is fully instigated, you continue to have historical events that affect theology, that affect the history of the world, and that affect us today. You know, in reality, when you think about it, uh, the whole history of the Western world, Western civilization, is really a religious history. All you have to do is go to a big museum somewhere like the Louvre or maybe New York or maybe in Los Angeles or some big museum, and you will see that even paintings really uh, reflect the historical religious background of Christianity because many of the great paintings are things that are based upon Christianity, or at least the stories in the New Testament. And so history really in the Western world is a history of how Christianity came about and then changed the world, but then also was changed by the world. Well, very quickly, Constantine, of course, moves his capital in 330. Jerome completes the Latin Vulgate in about 405. That was very important because he puts the word of God into Latin for uh, the church. Muhammad is born. Now that's going to have a tremendous impact upon the church, uh, or Christianity anyway, as Muhammad grows up and creates his own religion. Uh, there is a great schism between the East and the West, eventually, between uh, Catholicism and Orthodoxy, and the church is going to split. Christianity is going to split. In about 1100, you have the Crusades, because as Islam begins to rise up, and began to take over the world of the day, you have Christians then going to war physically against Muslims to try to recapture cities like Jerusalem. Well, of course, that was totally against the will of God. We are not to be a militant people. And so you have the Crusades. And then, of course, in 1455 or 56, you have Gutenberg who publishes the first Bible in Latin, which is going to literally revolutionize the fact that people pretty soon after that are going to be able to read the Bible in their own language. Well, let me just run through a couple of points here again. I sat this afternoon and I was trying to edit out and what ended up happening was I put more in. And so then, if you'd like to stay till midnight, we can. But what I want to do uh, maybe Sunday night is we'll look at the rest Reformation period. Now, what happens over the next few centuries is that the church or Christendom and politics become more and more entwined. And that's really what I think we need to take away from our study as we look at the time of Constantine on up to the time of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, Martin Luther lived in 1517 on. And that is when really the Reformation began on October 31st, uh, 1517. But between 303, when Constantine took power, and 517, what you have is this period of about 1,400 years where the church and the state continued to be interwoven, and it's really quite of a tangled mess. For example, you've heard about the Holy Roman Empire? Well, that really is a term that came about because there was this man by the name of Charlemagne. And Charlemagne was crowned by the Pope, Pope Leo III, and was given the power over the Roman Empire, thus the Holy Roman Empire, because it was a pope that gave him that power, as long as the pope could really have the final say. 
So Charlemagne then, and other leaders right on down the line, became the puppets for the popes. And that's what you find then in the world at that time, pervasively. It was the pope in Rome that pulled the strings for various nations and determined what would or would not be done. Well, again, when you have a combination of the politics of the world and the church, you always have a problem. And, of course, that eventually led to the split between the Orthodox and the Catholic Church. You know, the Orthodox Church is uh, the church that you find in the East. You remember when, uh, for example, if you go to Greece, you'll find the Greek Orthodox Church. And you go to Russia, you'll find the Russian Orthodox Church. It's all the same church. It's just one in Greece and one in Russia. But that is a different sort of structure than the Catholic Church. They all originated from the same group. But in the Catholic Church, you have the Pope in Rome. In the Orthodox Church, you have the patriarchs. And so you have a split in Christianity. Now, that split is going to continue. In fact, when Martin Luther, a few uh, hundred years later, begins to say, let's reform the Catholic Church, there's going to be more and more and more and more splits. And those splits are going to bring us right down even today when we're still seeing new groups being formed because they split away doctrinally from the group from which they came. And of course, the reason of that is because rather than going back to the Bible and being the simple New Testament church, they're trying to save a structure or change a structure that is inherently flawed. Well, I'm going to stop there tonight uh, because uh, that's just a kind of a good place to stop. But uh, as you go through the other few centuries, you know, Islam rises and it becomes to, it comes to a point where it is exerting tremendous influence over uh, the Western world. There are wars between the Muslims and between the Christians. And then, of course, eventually uh, we refocus in our study on the uh, church, the Catholic church, and the attempted reformation of the Catholic Church. And that's a fascinating period of time. And I think we'll just do that, Lord willing, uh, Sunday evening. But that's a period of time that it really affects us. Because, you know, when Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 list of complaints, it's called the 95 Thesis, on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, he was really breaking open the Pandora's box for letting people again, try to do whatever to kind of leave the, the structure of the Catholic Church. And of course, along with that came the printing of God's Word. You know, Martin Luther was a prolific printer. And then, of course, from that came the English Bible as uh, William Tyndale printed the first English Bible. And then, of course, we go right on down the line. Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew's Bible, all the way down eventually to the King James Version, which, of course, impacts us even today. So there's, it, it's all relevant. It's, it's all relevant to our lives. It's just difficult to look at the whole story. But we're going to stop there tonight. But what I want you to have come away with tonight is the fact that primarily the first and most grievous change in church history came about with the structure, the change in structure. As congregations gave up their autonomy and began then to form a pyramid with eventually the Pope at the top. And of course, that was never what God intended. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information 
or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.